This is the John Oakley Show podcast. There is the need for someone not to accept responsibility. I think a lot of governments and other people, and look, I'm a politician too, get so wound up in, well, who's going to be to blame for this? You know, at the end of the day, it's not about assessing blame. It's about learning from what went on here and changing these processes as quickly as possible. And that was John Tory. I, I can't believe he said that. It's not about assessing blame. This in reference to Jevin Kong, uh, the individual who went on the lam from CAMH and by all accounts is now in China. Having gotten out of the country, even after he had been assessed as NCR, not criminally responsible for the hacking by Cleaver to death of uh, his roommate back in 2014 in Don Mills and injuring seriously two others in that encounter. Within five years, he's free and clear. It's something that does demand uh, greater accountability than perhaps the mayor is alluding to. On that matter, uh, who might actually have dropped the ball in this instant and other matters pertaining to this particular bailiwick, uh, registered psychologist and media commentator Oren Amate has joined the Oakley Show just ahead of our panel and more topics worthy of discussion, although this will, this will make the radar as well. Oren, it's good to have you back in the program. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. Thank you. Can you help me out here? I mean, in the instance of somebody uh, being deemed not criminally responsible, but then greenlit by, according to the sources anyway, somebody either at CAMH or the Ontario Review Board, uh, how would he have been assessed to be cleared to go into a community unsupervised? Any idea? Well, in theory, he would have, you know, number one thing, they have to show that he's um, complying with any, uh, you know, treatment regimen, which would most likely be medication to deal with whatever uh, factors were, you know, making him, let's say, not able to distinguish right from wrong. So that's number one. Number two, they would have to show insight into what he had done. So, uh, you know, he had to show remorse. He'd have to show that this is not part of who he is, but it was a reflection of a state of mind that he was in that was not inherent to him. Uh, Number three, there would have to be a gradual process, a gradual graduated process where he earns more and more freedom step by step. And, you know, so it can be being uh, out of out of the off the grounds for, let's say, an hour to three hours with somebody supervised. And then it could be half a day, it could be a whole day, and you go from supervised to unsupervised. Sometimes there's overnights. But, you know, and, but in some cases, there could be, for example, overnights, but only in these designated places, like someone's home or something like that. But you would never, um, in theory, you wouldn't progress to a, a level of freedom that could lead to, you know, to lead to something like we've seen in this particular case. That just shouldn't happen. Well, and who is there policing or determining that he's taking his meds? Well, normally, if he's in a psychiatric facility, that would be the uh, the psychiatrist in charge, a psychiatrist or psychologist, um, you know, in, in charge of the case, and that they would be the ones who would be reporting to, you know, either the CAMH or, as I said, the Ontario Review Board to see whether it uh, is prudent to give, you know, extra steps of freedom. Once again, it's not from A to Z. You have to go through all these other steps to get to such a place that he was, that he was able to leave for extended periods of time unsupervised. Should we in society be confident that the people who make these assessments are really almost uh, foolproof in doing so? I mean, because public security is paramount, I would think. Uh, How confident can we be that these people are not a risk to reoffend if they're dutifully taking their meds? Well... Those are two different questions. So um, the first question of should we have this confidence in the people in charge? Um, I don't think it's ever safe to have uh, outright confidence. I don't want to besmirch an entire profession. But the fact is that psychiatrists and research has shown this, psychiatrists um, have a bad habit of overestimating their ability to make such determinations, sometimes based on 
you know, not enough information. Uh, there's an arrogance in that. And again, I don't want to say all psychiatrists, but there are some, and some of them must be in these kinds of positions. And uh, given their status, given their expertise and experience, they are loath to to question whether their judgment, you know, maybe has to be questioned by somebody else who has a different pair of eyes on a case, especially if it's a case that they directly are involved in, because they can see a person's improvement, and that improvement would, you know, allow greater freedom as a reflection on their ability either to manage the case, to treat the person, or to just, you know, kind of over assess the person's uh, abilities. So, you know, I think they can get too involved and, and it can become a reflection of themselves more than the person's ability to function in a way that would not put people at risk. So, no, we shouldn't have uh, too much confidence in that. I think that there has to be strict reviews and these pe- that people's cases have to be reviewed regularly to make sure that they are making the proper judgment in virtually all cases. So where do we start looking for accountability here? Well, I would like to know how he got from that, you know, from uh, from wherever he was previously to the point that he could go, uh, you know, without uh, supervision. Um, and we have to know whether he skipped a number of steps. Were there signs that um, that somebody else would have been able to pick up on and say, no, he's not complying with the medication or he is complying with the medication, but his motives are not uh, the same as he's presenting. You know, maybe he's doing this purely to game the system so that he can get uh, enough of a release where he can do what he eventually did, which was flee the damn country. Well, do you think this uh, merits a public inquiry? I would say so, and I, I don't like spending money, tax dollars on things that aren't uh, important. Someone could say, well, how often does this really happen? Um, it, in the cases like this, if it happens once, we have, uh, you know, we have trouble. And the fact is, more important than the time they actually escape is the public confidence. If someone thinks that this is happening more than once, maybe not every single day, but it can happen. If you are the individual who was either attacked uh, by somebody like this or a family member or something like that, you're going to be living in anxiety and fear, wondering, is the person who I believe is being incarcerated right now and watched, are they being released recklessly? You know, that, that's a state of apprehension that we shouldn't subject anybody to. Again, with Oren Amate, registered psychologist and media commentator, in the few moments we still have, I want you to speak to something that I, I guess I'm kind of curious about. We've got a situation where on Monday, it's the one-year anniversary of the Danforth Avenue shooting that killed two people injured 13, and there are several city-organized and community events planned uh, at Withrow Park on Logan Avenue. Uh, they're even going to have therapy dogs there. Uh, city's hosting a sunset vigil on June 20, or July 22nd at 8.51 p.m. at the Alexander the Great Parkette, which is at Logan and Danforth Avenues, uh, which I understand. I mean, it's a year out in the immediacy of this uh, tragedy, and then we had the same thing with the van attack along Young Street. But uh, are these commemorations therapeutic, necessary for healing or closure, or could they even compound or extend the grieving? Um, Are they necessary? No. Can they be therapeutic? For sure. Uh, We are social animals, and people can feel isolated. Even if they're surrounded by a bunch of people, if they feel disconnected, if they feel people don't understand them, if they feel people just aren't on the same page as they are, uh, they can always feel a sense of isolation. And isolation can, you know, can contribute to a sense of uh, helplessness and eventually hopelessness or despair. So anything that allows somebody to feel that, you know what, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person experiencing whatever happened this way, whether you were you know, whether you know somebody who was one of the victims or whether, you know, you were on the Danforth that night or even if you just live in the neighborhood or anywhere where you feel that this kind of thing can happen again, you want to have an opportunity to connect with other people who can give you a kind of uh, strength 
just through their being there, just this sense that there's other people there who have your back, so to speak. Even if it's somewhat of an illusion for many people, it's a sense of security that they gain from this. And there's nothing wrong with that. Should they be forced to do it? No, because for some people, as you say, it could be counterproductive. Maybe they don't want to remember this. Maybe they want to move forward. Maybe they don't want to, uh, you know, uh, this being kind of thrown in their face. So, you know, I think it's good to have it as an option, and I think everybody needs to know what, the, you know, needs to determine what they individually need in order to move forward from these kinds of events. All right, so sharing collective grief, uh, but finally, very quickly then, uh, on an annual basis, or is there a finite time where you say it may be even counterproductive? Yeah, after a while, I think you're just kind of clinging to the past. It's almost ruminating. So I would say the first year is great, maybe the second year. But, um, I mean, you're going to see less attendance. And I think for the people for whom it's important, you know, they can have their own kind of uh, commemoration. Maybe they'll have a little group with a few people. Maybe they'll have a shared email or, you know, Facebook page or something like that. Um, It will, you know, reduce over time. And it should reduce because, again, you don't want to cling to the past. You want to feel that I've got closure on this and now I can move forward. All right. We'll move forward on that note, Oren. I always appreciate your input. Uh, Have a great weekend. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Take care. You got it. Oren Amate, registered psychologist and media commentator. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 